Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Hi, all. Welcome. It is Wednesday night. Generational change. I'm Jen. I'm Peter. And you're going to lose your bodily autonomy sooner rather than later, aren't I'm you? I'm very <laughs> displeased. I'm very, very displeased. Um, but you know what? We're going to get it back because I, I, Florida is not a red state, people. Florida has a red legislature. Florida is actually a red, uh, like a populist purple state, I would say. We just have a red legislature that has hijacked our entire state. So it when really we, has, hasn't But it? by getting, we're going to get the abortion um, amendment on the ballot. And how are we going to do that? Well, we have, there is an amendment that is circulating. It has already been starting to make its rounds around. We need lots of signatures. Lots of different organizations are working on this um, petition. And we are going to get our bodily autonomy back because we know that this state will go populist when it comes to ballot initiatives. So I have no doubt that if we get this on the ballot, it will pass. I really don't. I know religious people that are not happy with this draconian crap. So I'm just saying, if most people are not hip with what's going on with this. No, I, def- I definitely agree. But I also think yeah. that, you know, if you look statistically in Florida, when a ballot initiative is, when we when you get something on the ballot, more often than not, it ends up passing. Yes. So this is one that people will definitely be looking out oh, for. Yeah. And I don't think there's enough religious crazies out there to tell people to vote against no. this like it's a good thing. No, there, there aren't. And the truth is, I know religious people that you would think would be okay with these things, and yet they're not. It's, it's. Like, I'm telling you, he went a bridge too far. He went a bridge. You know what? 15 weeks is pushing it to me because you obviously can't get an amnio. Um, well, to me, I think it's like ridiculous that we're debating what we're doing with our bodies and our healthcare in general. But, um, but yeah, the six week I think pushed people over the edge. Yeah, you bite off more than you can chew. I mean, I was over the edge the minute we started discussing my bodily autonomy amongst other people. So I sort of now we're figuring out how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, you know. But for most people, the six weeks was too far. Well, we're going to talk with somebody who definitely knows a thing or two about using their platform for good, especially when it's a big one. And all too often we see people in positions of power, authority, and influence that are using it for the wrong reasons. And Lord knows in the state of Florida, that happens more often than not. Am I right? Well, without further ado, we are pleased to welcome a local celebrity, if you want to call him that. He is the author of Business, The Business of Good, Social Entrepreneurship and the New Bottom Line. This is definitely my wheelhouse. I can't wait to talk about it. Jason Haber, welcome to Generational Change. Hi, guys. Good to Hi. see you. What's the name of the dog? Lulu. Lulu, very cute. I should have my, my dog sleeping over in my left ear. His name's Riley. Yeah, no, she's sort of like our little mascot. Amazing. Yeah. Another episode. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. She makes an appearance. But she's really smiley right now, so I thought, you know. It works. Uh, thanks for coming on. It's nice to meet you. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. So tell us initially where, because... There's a lot of people that are successful in business that have different ways that they, you know, want to give back. But the business of good, I think, really speaks to kind of what we both discuss constantly on the show when it comes to the different political philosophies that are running rampant these days. You know, there's a lot of talk about socialism. There's a lot of talk about how capitalism is broken. The way I look at it is the most successful economies in the world, as I'm sure you would probably agree, 
have basically a hybrid system. It's a combination of capitalism mixed with socialism. There is no way to actually have one without the other if you want to have a balanced society. So what was your impetus to write this book and kind of what the whole idea was? If, in fact, it was similar to this concept of, you know, we do have to rethink how we we do run this economy. What we do, it was actually, it's very personal for me. You know, um, when I, before I wrote the book, I was working in New York City for a very large real estate firm. And believe it or not, the reason that I got to this point, this moment where I wrote the book was because of Muammar Gaddafi. Now, I know that's going to sound strange. So true story. You can Google it just to fact check me in real time if anyone wants. So Muammar Gaddafi in 2009 tried to rent an apartment from me in New York City. And uh, I was contacted by the Libyan government. They were looking for a place for him to stay during the UN General Assembly session in 2009. He'd never been to the United States. And 2009, as some of you will recall, was a very difficult time for our country. The economy was in the, in the tank. Uh, the real estate market had cratered well different than, than today. And I had one listing. It was a rental listing at this townhouse on the Upper East Side of New York, not far from the UN. So I was contacted about it, and, um, and I declined to work with Gaddafi, uh, because uh, two weeks before I had been contacted, the uh, the man who was convicted of bombing Pan Am Flight 103 over Lagerby, Scotland, had been released from prison. So I said to the Libyan government, I said, "I'll tell you what, I'll waive my fee. I'll do the list. I'll do the rental for free if you send Gaddafi back. Sorry, if you send the convicted uh, convict back to prison in in Scotland." And the, the Libyan, his name is Megrahi. And the Libyans, anyway, hung up on me. And that was that. What's the postscript of the story, which is funny, which if you Google it, you'll also see is true. Where did they end up renting? They rented land in New Jersey that was owned by, drumroll, Donald Trump. Exactly. It was a really great idea, believe me. <laughs> so uh, what was interesting to me was the company that I worked for at the time was upset with me for not taking the fee. So here I was when I thought I was making this political statement, which was much more important than money. And my argument to the company was if we emphasize that we didn't do the deal, that it would be better for our business. And they didn't believe me. So I ended up leaving the company and starting my own firm in New York City, which I later sold. But at the time I started, it was very, very small and was built in this foundation of we're going to do good with every transaction that we do. And so at that firm, what we did was we linked the essential element of living in New York City, which is housing, with the essential element of living in the developing world, which is clean water. And for every time we did a deal, we helped fund the construction of a clean water well in the developing world through a nonprofit called Charity Water. And that's how we synced them. Did it work? Well, we had no business and we've done we probably had over $100 million in sales just from that sales pitch alone. So it shows you that there is an ethos out there that if you can connect with people on a certain level, it will work. That capitalism doesn't exist in a vacuum. That actually you can connect with people within a capitalist structure that share your values and do business within that. <clears throat> and it will be better for your business. And so I took those lessons, and that's when I wrote, I wrote The Business of Good uh, out of that, and I, I did a, a lecture series that followed it. And the book is now used in a lot of uh, business schools and entrepreneurial classes around the country. 
normally in the in the fall, I, I start speaking to, to colleges where where the book is used, and it's just it's just a primer for people to start thinking about capitalism a little differently and thinking about the ways that capitalism can help sort of move forward our progressive conversations that we have here. Capitalism doesn't need to be the antithesis of the enemy of progressivism. In fact, uh, what I argue is it's social entrepreneurs, uh, which is the space that government can't go, sorry, the private sector can't go and government won't go. Right. They occupy. Now, right now in Florida, to turn this local, there's a huge chasm where government won't go anymore because basically there's a fascist governor, let's call it what it is in the state. And so I think there's a role for the private sector to help fill that gap here and around the country and around the world too. And so I think it's more relevant than ever today that we talk about uh, entrepreneurism. One of the shames of it is that Republicans, for whatever reason, have claimed this sort of rugged individualism, entrepreneurial mantle. Like when you think of entrepreneurs, it's often associated not with the Democratic Party, which I think is a shame. I think social entrepreneurship gives us a really exciting opportunity to, to reclaim that. And so that's one of the reasons why I go out and, and, and speak around the country about this topic. Uh, I think it's good for it, it aligns with democratic values of, of equity, of fairness, of equality, of, of social justice, climate, and on and on and on. Um, and we can do it in a way that's pro-business, that creates jobs, creates well-paying jobs, but not just about jobs. It creates uh, equity in uh, an organization. If people don't make money. People don't make wealth just from income. They make it from owning assets. And so as a business person, if you can start a company that's successful and have the asset, you'll make much more over the long haul than just having income. All the top billionaires in the world didn't get there because they were salaried employees. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot to be learned in the entrepreneurial model that I think we can adopt in ways that align with our progressive values. Yeah. I mean, by the way. Yeah. Well, I mean, for me, it's ultimately this idea that it's just, they're just too greedy, right? Like, like there's no cap on how greedy you can be. They're not happy just having a lavish lifestyle, right? That's not enough. And that to me is the problem is that when you look at other countries, and this is something I've noticed in so many different places is, and I talk about it all the time, is there's much more of a concern for the collective good, in general, most other countries, they they think everyone should have health care. Right. Like most other countries recognize the importance of the collective and how everyone interacts. It's not every man for himself in the nature that we are here. And so people in places like, let's say, Canada, because so my husband has colleagues in his field that are up there and, and it's in medicine. And so we know what they make. We know what the differences are. And you know what? They're perfectly happy yeah. with, with having less in lieu of having a system that benefits the collective. And that is a really hard sell here. And that's what I feel like I'm constantly fighting against. It isn't that we couldn't have capitalism and have it work out where it's helping people. We can, but there's a lot of greedy pigs and no, and they are making it so that it's hard to have nice things. Well, it's a lot of greedy pigs who are in control of the system in many ways. And so Correct. In Canada, for example, the amount of very, very, very wealthy people is this compared to what it is here. We have right. this class 
of uber wealthy people that exists in probably no other country relative to our size. And so what happens is they exert an enormous influence on our body politic because you know, decisions like Citizens United empowers them to give unbelievable sums of money to influence the outcome of elections. Anyone that says that like negative ads don't work, you know, they have uh, data on it. There is a reason why people do it because they work. Oh, it works. Right? It works. Yeah. Uh, but in the same in the same token, no one wants to believe that they're influenced by a negative ad. But uh, the bottom line is they are every single research study for the last 30 years has shown that it works. And so you have this huge pool of dark money that goes into influencing the outcome of elections and then also the outcome of policy decisions. And you have a cadre of people who are so wealthy in this country who can control so much of our body politic. That becomes a problem and it erodes the foundations of our democracy. Now they're actually controlling our bodies. Well, now it's not just our body politic, it's our literal bodies. I, mean, I feel like I'm being violated. Yeah, I mean, I you know, that's I mean, I don't, I don't know if these folks have ever taken an anatomy class or understand anything about science. Science, I um, I can't, I can't figure it out. You know, you know, I'm, I'm like I, I recently moved to Florida from New York, where we've caught where before Roe was overturned, we had codified Roe. You know, like what's happening here? It, it's honestly, I think it's from folks who don't understand anatomy. I mean, it's. Well, we do. Well, Florida is 48th in education. So your 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 hypothesis is actually well founded. It yeah. is very likely that these people have no concept of science and anatomy. That's very plausible. I don't think they have a concept of science, anatomy or actually history for that matter. Um, I find it. I find so much of what I see down here just is uh, ignorant and disturbing um, coming from from the from the governor. And um and, and the problem is people believe it. And, um, it, and it's, you know, it's up to, it's up to people, you know, like yourselves and like us to have these conversations to remind people that it doesn't have to be this way, that it's determined, like we can determine the outcome of, uh, I, I refuse, like you said, the opening, I refuse to believe Florida is a red state. Um, I wouldn't have moved here if I thought it was a red state. It really isn't. It really isn't. I've been all around it and it really isn't. It's, it's purple. I'll give you that, but it's populist and it is not a red cabal. That is what is holding our legislature hostage. Right. Well, the legislature to me feels so out of step with the rest of the state. Exactly. Usually these things correct themselves even on their own. I wouldn't take a chance, but um, I, I have a hunch that what we saw in Jacksonville was sort of just the start of a, of a rebalancing in the state. And um, I, I mean, I don't, I, you know, again, I, I, like, I'm new to this. Uh, well, I mean, I've been coming here for 30 years, but part time. But now that I'm full time here, uh, I've been I, I, like locally in Palm Beach County where I live. Um, the people that I've encountered have, have no relationship to what's happening in Tallahassee and think it's all bizarre. Yeah. Um, but you live in the Tri-County Blue Oasis, okay? Right. So, so we live in our own little echo chamber, but I would say most people in the state don't pay attention at all. Right. At all. Okay, so the majority of people don't even know, like, don't pay attention. That's the truth. And within the people that do, you have, most people are not pleased with what's going on, even wh whether they're red or blue. Right, but let me say this. So I come from the Upper West Side of Manhattan, which is reputationally very, very blue. 
And so I ran uh, Congressman Jerry Nather's political club for many years. I was an elected uh, party official in New York. So in on the Upper West Side, just by way of example, the voter registration imbalance was like 70, 65, 35, 70, 30. But our candidates come election day in a general would win 80, 20, 85, 15, 90, 10 even. So we would outperform the, the base. We would outperform right. the voter registration. So here, what, since I've been here, what I've noticed is Democrats have underperformed the voter reg. So yep. outperforming the voter reg is really important, but that's about like organizing, activism, like getting people out to vote, which we did really well and continue to do really well in the Upper West Side where I'm still involved and still helping. Um, but here, that hasn't been the case. Like, uh, I, it was an interesting statistic. If, if, um, if the, like, Charlie Chris could have won the election if Democrats just came, they just didn't vote. Well, he's a horrible candidate. Well, again, so, yeah, not like obvious. No, but that's the problem. Like, maybe, and I'm just saying, this is my sort of like theory is that Democrats might vote and people might register more as Democrats if the Democrats were actually offering something. Yeah. That's just my theory. Right. right? can't just be the party of no, like you have to be for something. Uh, yeah. And Charlie Crist is a political chameleon. Sorry, but he is. I, you're not, I've lived here. I'm from here. I'm a townie. I'm his, I am a second generation native to South Florida. So I've known him basically forever and a day. And he just goes where the wind blows. Uh, it, it, neither here nor there. In the state of New York. That was the best we could put up against. And, that, and it isn't, but that's, our, our party has also been taken hostage. Yeah. That's another story. And, and as you've seen in the state of New York, you know, there's a real, uh, and regardless of where people's politics fall, regardless of, you know, whether you're, you know, probably more center moderate. Uh, but even if you look at the way the left movement has changed in New York City, particularly as it pertains to AOC's victory over Crowley, uh, that has inspired a lot of people to get involved in the local level politics that otherwise wouldn't have been there. Uh, New York is very unique in that regard. And, you know, even holding somebody like Hockle's feet to the fire is a big deal. Um, the idea that, you know, we've been pushing, we push constantly for universal health care, single payer health care. And the fact that in New York, there really is momentum to get the New York Health Act moving in Albany is such a far cry from where we are here in Florida. You know, we really do not have a legislature that responds, but what we also have is a Democratic Party that basically is akin to just playing the, you know, the Washington generals to the Harlem Globetrotters. It's the not, GOP. yeah, they, they so have when, no, they have no meat. We had two, we had two particular House, uh, House uh, state house candidates that were in Florida, one in Orlando, one in Miami, that absolutely should be up in Tallahassee right now. We could have had two more. But because the state party is essentially inept and does things almost like quizzically to the point where you're thinking, are they working with the GOP? Well, and they also don't respect young people. That's, yes, that's also, that's, that's, also, that's also the thing. You mentioned that you've been working with Nadler for many years. A lot of the politicians that are down here, like Jen ran against Wasserman Schultz for Congress, and a lot of the people that have been working with her for a long time those are people that have been in politics 30, 40, even 50 years. And the fact that the new blood isn't being welcomed in, especially no. when it comes with a more populist left bend, no. that's not something that sits very well with the people that have been here for a long time. So changing that culture is a huge part of the process of getting things where they need to go. I, mean, I guess you agree with that. You, and, I, and I mentioned this to, to Nikki Fried, actually. One thing you could do tomorrow that would change the party in this state 
you may not even be aware of this. In Florida, well, you probably know this, in Florida, Democratic clubs are yep. not allowed to endorse in primaries. They can only endorse in the general after the primary has been decided. Why is that? Why is that? Why does that matter? Here's why it matters. In New York, for example, Democratic mm-hmm. clubs endorse in the primary. Why is that important? Because it means the clubs have hundreds of people who are active members because the clubs have power. They're not social educational like they are here in Florida. They actually have a say in shaping who becomes the Democratic nominee for House seats, for state Senate seats, congressional seats, etc. When you give people power, guess what? They show the fuck up. Well, our party here does do primaries. What they do is they just put their thumb on the incumbent and they ignore everybody else. You know what I'm saying? So they do. They don't have like they're not. They're not interested in challenging incumbents. Clubs like like I have the Boca Raton Democrats here. They can't endorse. They said that we can't endorse. And I said, what do you mean you can't endorse? They say that because if they were able to endorse, they'd have to have screenings, and they wouldn't just be in bag with the incumbent, and then that would not be allowed in this state. Like, Term limits in Florida, like there are so many openings that don't exist in other states, like New York, for example, where the last 16 years in my neighborhood on the Upper West Side have the same three elected officials. But here there actually is turnover. So when you have an open seat, the clubs can be enormously influential. Oh, yeah. However, they're not. They have no role. So what I'm saying is you could grow at the local grassroots level huge volumes of, of activists and supporters who get involved at the local level in politics if you gave them power to endorse. It's literally in the party rules. It goes back to like the Dixiecrat days. And in the state party rules, it actually fines clubs. I read this for myself. Clubs are fined if they make an endorsement in a primary. If you flip that, if you got rid of it and allowed clubs to make endorsements here in Florida, you would have like double or triple the amount of people who would in, uh, register for the clubs because they want to say they have power. They want to have to say what's happening and who they endorse. It would make an enormous difference in the state. And you'd start electing younger candidates, more progressive candidates, more diverse candidates, because you're allowing the locals who are involved to have influence and say. And uh, I've been, I'm trying, since I've gotten down here over the last year, I just, this is my pet project. I've been working on trying to change the state rules. Well, I hope you do, but this is sort of my, this is my, my sort of thought process as to that. So let's say that the, all of the clubs, cause I can only speak as to the clubs in Broward and I'm very familiar with how it all goes with the primary in Broward. So let's say they were all able to endorse all the clubs were able to endorse and let's say they had screenings, Right they would still all endorse the incumbent because they're all scared of her. There is so much like, it's almost like it wouldn't be a real thing. It would be like a fake election. It wouldn't really well, wouldn't be real. Well, the one thing that I would say- They still endorse her. Yeah. Now, the one thing that I would say to that, and Jason, you probably would agree, um, there's a huge difference between a lot of other places in the state versus Wasserman Schultz, who is a who for all intents and purposes is still the person who leads the party. If you're friendly with Nikki Freed, we've talked about this at length. Uh, She put the thumb on the scale against Nikki in the primary last year, which was a terrible, terrible political miscalculation, but not a surprise either way. Um, If we're looking to make those types of wholesale changes, everything does start at the local level, but we definitely agree. Uh, There has been major pushback. The problem is, is that again, as we talked about, Florida is a very unique state in the sense that 
you have like six or seven counties around the state that more or less hold the overwhelming majority of the blue vote. Right. And so by extension, Palm Beach County, less uh, less to the degree of Broward, but still blue nonetheless, and obviously Broward being considerably blue. You know, there is this, there's also the issue of the weighted vote. There is a considerable amount of influence. Of yeah, yeah, there's a considerable amount of influence. That was a step it. in the right direction. So now we really have to figure out, you know, what is going to get more and more young people involved? Well, as I've suggested, as Jenna suggested, you know, if we have the opportunity to put a woman's right to choose on the ballot in 24, that also opens up the opportunity. We for, do have that choice. Yeah, but what we also have is these non-corporate populist candidates, especially young candidates, that can run with that ballot initiative and say, I am 100 percent behind that. We right. need to make this the law of the land of the state yeah. of Florida. And that is going to help them exponentially on the campaign trail, as far as I can see. No, uh, candidates who are running in races that may have no say in choice should still run on choice. County commission, run on choice. Yep. Sure. Run on tax collector, I don't care. Run on choice and you'll win. That no. is a Double K, thank you. We love you. You're always an amazing supporter of our show. A wonderful lady who was up in Wisconsin, a union person. Uh, well, that's great. I, I think what you're doing is extremely admirable. Um, I happen to, I'm, I'm recently in commercial real estate, so I'm learning a whole bunch of stuff really, really quick. Uh, but the thing that I've learned that I really hold dear is that you can choose who you work with. You right. don't have to work with people that are not on the same mission. And there is a lot of crossover in commercial real estate with politics. I was at Grant Cardone's event in Aventura. So I, I learned very quickly how the how the right likes to think about these types of things. At the same time, um, it can be an extremely rewarding profession. And mm -hmm. so doing what you've done, I'm sure you would say the same. It's amazing how agreeable people really are when you talk to them about you know, things like BlackRock and Blackstone in, in ways that I don't think they they generally just associate everything being in one big, you know, condensed box, which it isn't. And you learn that once people are removed from what I consider to be the wedge issues, whether it is abortion, LGBTQ, Second Amendment, if you get right down to the core issues, healthcare, the environment, education, endless war, civil liberties, people agree, like on most stuff, there really isn't that big of disagreements. There yeah. really is a unifying connection. And if we can deliver that type of message through the, through the lens of social entrepreneurship, because I agree, the one thing the GOP, especially in this state, has done exceptionally well is capture the business community. The Democrats are extremely bad at it. And it takes individuals like yourself to give a new perspective that is very appealing as far as I can see. Right. And I think listen, I think it fits perfectly in our times right now. And I know there's a lot of, uh, of assaults on capitalism. And by the way, they're well, they're well intended. And I agree with them that we've created an, an unfair system where too many people are, are losing and the few that are winning are all the way up here. <clears throat> and the idea is how do you, how do you even it a little bit? And I think social entrepreneurship provides a, a really nice template for us to go after the issues that are that the government's not tackling and the private sector is not tackling now, and there's a market for that. And it, it, like so, and, and as an entrepreneur, you can have you can be a nonprofit or you can be a for-profit. You shouldn't be embarrassed about either one that you're in. Mm -hmm. And 
you want to be an unabashed capitalist and earn money, I say, go for it. Just do it in a way that's responsible, uh, that conforms to the values you set forth in your business plan. And if you want to be a nonprofit, uh, it's also very admirable. Uh, and I write a lot about this in the book, that I think nonprofits have been looked at the very, in a very wrong way. I'll give you a very quick example. Nonprofits are scored by how much money they put back, quote unquote, into the field. So if I'm a nonprofit and I spend money on hiring an expensive CEO, for example, or doing elaborate marketing, my score goes down. And I write in the book, I think that's insane. I think uh, nonprofits should feel like they should invest in marketing and branding. They should go out and hire the best people. Not everything actually should go into the field. But the nonprofits that do that right now are actually considered uh, like less uh, pure, whatever the, these, these reports are. <clears throat> I think it's all a bunch of garbage. So I like the idea of nonprofits thinking about themselves as entrepreneurs more and taking risks. You see there are nonprofits now, the last five years, that start to change, that are, that are breaking away from the old way where like you had to have the dingy office, just like a second act. It was like, you know, uh, we don't measure our performance. Nonprofits are becoming much more entrepreneurial right now, and I think that's great. Your work is exceptional, and it should be commended. Um, there is uh, one aspect of the left which I think is very foolhardy, which is just hate on people that have uh, ways and means, which is not smart. Uh, there are a lot of people out there that are very well-to-do, that do have a, an exceptional amount of resources that are trying to do the right thing. And that is something that should be exceptionally commended. Um, our mission on our for, for what we do is to transform politics into service. That is the way that it should be. Uh, no one is above it. And <laughs> you are certainly living proof that you can absolutely make an impact from the left, right. even if the economy and capitalism as a whole has done you right, which unfortunately is not the case for most. Correct. But there is a way to make it better. If anybody would like to get in touch with you or follow your work, how can they do so uh, going forward? Oh, so just re- at Jason Haber on Twitter is probably the best way to reach me. Um, or you can reach me an email, jason at jasonhaber.com. Jason, thank you so much for coming on. Guys, pick up the book, The Business of Good. Social entrepreneur. There it is, baby. Very nice. Social entrepreneurship and the new bottom line. We definitely have to get together. We're only about a half an hour away from one another. So we will definitely be making plans in the near future. In the meantime, have a wonderful evening and thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Take care, Jason. Bye. Great guy. Uh, Obviously, learned a lot. And so, of course, there is this, you know, the idea that if you do, I just, you hear very often, I hear it in my line of work, you've probably heard it being an attorney. Uh, very often people, when they make a lot of money, they tend to be the cheapest people in the world. They tend to be cheaper than people that have nothing and they would like to give, but they can't afford to do so. Most, the charitable people tend to be the people that are just a step or two above the people in need. Yes. That's what we see all the time. And That's so just pretty that common. sort of mindset has to continue. I This whole idea of like, it's kill or be killed. It's just so, I mean, again, it is becoming somewhat passe, but unfortunately we've had mm-hmm. to hit a point in our country that it is so bad that ultimately people are like, well, whatever we're doing now, it's not working, so we're going to need to do something else. But if there is one thing that has been holding us back considerably, I think we can agree, 
the military industrial complex has a significant hold on our economy, on our politics, and certainly with what you know, we've experienced over the last 20 plus years has been nothing short of a nightmare that does not end. And, you know, we're very fortunate to be able to have a very strong relationship with Eisenhower Media Network, which has a lot of wonderful individuals that like to come on and talk about uh, foreign policy, foreign affairs, which let's face it, uh, if you think the average American doesn't know squat about politics on the domestic side, that's 10 times worse when it comes to foreign policy. So we are very grateful to have an individual who can speak directly to any and all things that are going on right now, especially when it comes to how our money is spent. He is a former U.S. Air Force Arabic linguist the fact that he could speak Arabic is really damn impressive, I must say. And so we're going to learn a thing or two about exactly because we what. don't learn anything but English, and we don't even bad speak English. That. But I'm we learning the Espanol, Piquito. I'm trying the best I can. Christian Sorensen, welcome to Generational Change. Thank you for having me. This is a real treat. Thank you for coming on. Um, you know, anytime we're generally pretty. I'm not going to say anti-military on his behalf, but on mine. So for mm. me. Um, I just think it's not at all what I want my collective resources going to in any way. That's just not at all what I want my collective resources going to. I would prefer it not, but given that now that's what we are basically is a war economy in the sense that all we manufacture and make are weapons, you know, at this point, I feel like there's no getting rid of it because it's all we have now. No, it's very, um, it's, uh, very easy to be, uh, that discouraged. And um, you'll hear politicians, uh, red team, blue team, and big business often say that, uh, you know, poo-poo a planned economy. But we do have a planned economy, and it's basically run out of the Pentagon. And it is uh, handing over a little over half, about 55% of all discretionary dollars to war every single year. And of that 55%, well over half goes to corporations. And that's the planned economy here in the United States. How much of that do you attribute to the conscientious decision-making of the last 40 years, whether it is the, you know, the, the initial stages that were started under Reagan, but ultimately that was taken, in my personal opinion, to the worst heights under Clinton, with the deregulation and the trade deals that basically outsourced all of our jobs, at least the ones that really mattered. Uh, the unionization numbers are as rock bottom as they've ever been, even though there's a lot of optimism to be had, seeing as how the interest in joining a labor union of some kind today is approaching peak levels. Not hard to see why. But how much of it would you attribute to those policy decisions that have been made over the past generation plus? Well, I would, if I had to put a starting point on it, I would point to the 1947 National Security Act, which basically, uh, after all prior wars, we demobilized to a great extent. After World War II, we didn't really demobilize. There was a brief period between 1945 and 1947, but the 1947 National Security Act basically entrenched the military-industrial complex, and it established, among other things, the National Security Council and CIA. And CIA, as we know, basically protects the whole apparatus, particularly overseas. At the same time, um, 
there was the 1947 Labor Management Relations Act. And what that did was basically take away, strip away from the left and from labor, all effective, really, really tough means of organizing. Certain types of strikes and uh, certain types of mobilizations, those were banned under law. So if I had to pick a point, I'd say 1947. And as you just noted, it's really only gotten worse um, basically toward the end of the 60s, early 70s, when the U.S. ruling class basically said, all right, uh, the awakening that the public had during the 60s, we can't have that. We can't have those types of labor games, gains, however nominal. Uh, we have to really kick it in the high gear. And so big business started uh, what we know today as, quote unquote, neoliberal economic policy. And they basically started the, uh, the outsourcing, like you said. They began automating to the extent that they could back then. And that's really picked up in recent years. And they really, uh, really started beating up on the working class in, in all, all manner. And like you said, during the Clinton administration, it was a, you know, an, an absolute nightmare. And uh, what he would do is he would pass conservative legislation and claim it was uh, progressive one way or another. <laughs> and, uh, you know, everybody, <laughs> it was a great PR victory. And it was <laughs> really, really troubling. I mean, he, he, re, he really showed um, how well the military industrial complex operates under um, quote unquote, a, a liberal presidency. I mean, from, he basically, he did everything. He took um, what were a few special access programs to uh, whole new levels. He passed legislation to, to basically balloon that. And special access programs are basically very, very um, compartmentalized programs within uh, the national security state. So only a handful of people know what's going on. It's basically layers and layers of secrecy. So he took those. He did the quote-unquote prevention through deterrence policy. He implemented that in the uh, between the uh, on basically on the southern border, funneling humans into very inhospitable terrain. That was him. Um, DHA, uh, DEA's special operations branch got up and running on that. I mean, all kinds of things. Um, he's rumored to have passed a presidential directive that allows Joint Special Operations Command to operate uh, in U.S. cities and on U.S. territory which under the Posse Comitatus Act would have been illegal against U.S. law. He's rumored to have passed a presidential directive that said that basically gave them a waiver. I mean, all kinds of things. So, yeah, long story short, it's been uh, it's been a nightmare since uh, since 1947 and particularly since neoliberal economic policies got kicked off in the late 60s, early 70s. Yeah, well, we, where you see the merger of parties is on the idea of capitalism and profit. So at the end of the day, they all agree on that. So what used to be a Democratic Party that maybe had this perception of like an anti-war of an anti-war stance, um, the more that the military industrial complex became was just the profit machine that it is, basically any sort of moral misgivings about war, even though there might be some, they pale in comparison to the profit motive of being in war. And so that's where we basically see the corporate takeover of both parties. Bingo, bingo. And so Congress's role in that, and we see this um, with, you know, when red team's in charge, when blue team's in charge, Congress's role that goes really unreported in a lot of even mainstream and alternative media is to pack the annual National Defense Authorization Act with sections that guarantee conflict hot and cold and guarantee broad um, deployment 
of the troops all around the world. And so I, every, every year I try to read these things and they, they always top a thousand pages and I never make it through. It is incredibly discouraging, but you can go to, um, you know, to Congress's websites. You can search for National Defense Authorization Act 2023 and start reading it and pick any spot, scroll through randomly, pick a spot, and you will see that every section basically guarantees conflict. So it could be the, the militarization of Eastern Europe over the last 15 years, 20 years, which leads to what we have uh, today, uh, the tragedy in Ukraine, or what we're doing now um, with regard to the militarization of the Pacific and what might pop up, pop off in the future with regard to Taiwan. I mean, it's a real nightmare. Yeah, it's just it, because you. I see both angles. I see the angle of the sort of global imperialism aspect of it. So like you have the war hawks that basically want to own the world. Yeah. And then you have the Democrats that want to just profit off of it. So <laughs> it's, it's kind of like there's no, the, all there is is incentive to invade and be in other places. And it, it's, it is very discouraging. And it's definitely something like I'm against the next war. That's how I feel, you know, like it's just this is ridiculous. And it's it's amazing that it's so brazen. Mm -hmm. It's not even like this isn't even a secret. It's just known that this is the case. And we're all just like, yeah, we just go to war for profit. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's so that's why that's one of the reasons why. So I've been I've been binging um, a few of your episodes um, on the YouTube recently since uh I was put in touch with you guys. And that's one of the things I really love about your, your live stream and your, your clips that you put up. It's, um, it's so refreshing, you know, for you to just say I'm against the next war. That is so refreshing. So thank you guys for what you do. It's really, it's a real treat. Hey, listen, we take it on the chin because we're not doing what some of our, you know, listen. That's why we don't get a lot. That's why we're small. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Our friends, uh, ones that, you know, I, I even have, you know, commentary with is like, you know, we're not here to talk about drama. This is not our our country is literally going straight to hell. And if anybody would know it, it's you because you literally have been to hell on Earth. And it's like it's coming to America. If you think it ain't happening, you're really blind. But no, let's complain about, you know, what this person said to that person. And it's like, no, what we need to be talking about is the systemic takeover of our government by corporate special interests. That is it. There is nothing else. Right. Well, because until that is dealt with, we're not living in a democracy, right? Like we have this completely malfunctioned republic. Love, because, you, love you, Linda. Thank, thank you so you, much. Because we we see it. Because if you live in a functioning re- democracy, right, then you would have policy that reflects the will of the majority. Yep. We clearly do not have that. Therefore, it's a de facto non-functioning republic. And so when, when we're living in that, it's very, very um, difficult for people to have any sense of control over the situation. And it's not very inspired. And, you know, we we do the best that we can. But, you know, most people don't get involved because they don't think it matters. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you can't blame them because they're, you know, the the working class is so beat up in this country. You know, if you're working, (laughs) if you're working (laughs) dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of hours a week, when you when you get even a moment to breathe, you want to you want to space out, you want to relax, you want to, you know, take a load off, you want to drift away, you want to, you know, engage in a little bit of self-care. It's just, uh, you know, who has time to, to even, um, open, open the news, you know, to the extent that they're, (laughs) you know, that anybody's reporting on anything anymore. So, yeah. 
Yeah. And you know, it's by design, right? Like, so if people are struggling and working three jobs in order to live, they're not going to be able to be involved politically. They're not going to be involved in different actions and things that are organizing because they're just trying to get by. And then you also have the media being completely just like stenographers of power. And so with all of that, it's like this recipe for this completely just, I mean, everybody is very disgruntled and ignorant and it's just going to reach a boiling point. And I think that, you know, I've always said it when you are such a violent country everywhere in the world, that it shocks me when people are surprised that we're seeing so much violence here, because to me, it's a matter of time and it's only going to get worse. If you, you, you can't be the world police and be this complete military thing and not expect violence at home like this. I, I just don't see how you could have it both ways. Double K, thank you as always. We really love you and it really means a lot yeah. to our channel. Smash that like button, get this out here. We are speaking to Christian Sorensen of the Eisenhower Media Network. He did serve in the Middle East. Um, all right, so look, let's get into Ukraine. Obviously, this is something that, you know, we kind of saw this coming from the very beginning. We tried to have a very objective lens on it. Uh, most people don't actually know where a starting point is for a war. They just assume that Putin woke up one day and decided to invade Ukraine. <laughs> right. Nothing. We didn't start, do anything because, wrong. Well, look, if nothing you, to see here. If you constantly talk for years and years about how Putin really put you know Trump into the White House, it's very easily to see how the millions, and I mean millions of people, who are psychologically damaged by Donald Trump getting into the White House, yeah. they are willing to believe just about anything regarding what actually did or did not happen. So he becomes public enemy number one, yet the entire time people want to forget about Crimea in 2014. It's like nothing ultimately comes to pass unless there is something that is pushing it in that direction. Everyone knows that NATO is basically the United States and those that are part of it. And so right now we are seeing the same pattern as Iraq. It is the exact same formula. It is one of those things where you're hearing from whoever it is. It could be somebody as, <coughs> for the most part, I mean, let's be fair. Uh, the one thing that Trump managed to do as president is get a lot of the neocons out of the Republican Party. They just found their way to the Democratic Party and they yeah. welcome them with open arms. Yep. So whether it is Bill Kristol, whether it is, of course, the worst scumbag of them all, John Bolton, or yep. Mike Pompeo, if you could explain to the American people who are watching this and will watch this, how these two wars, however different they may seem because we went into Iraq and we are proxy supporting what's happening in Ukraine, that the intention is forever war. There is never an intent to end this. No. The only time a war genuinely really ends is if there's another one around the corner that they can go take take on. Uh, and then they just stay and occupy the and other one. And stay and occupy. Right. So why do you think it is that so many Americans can't see that the war in Ukraine could have easily ended like, like that? And the reason it's still going right now is because when you have for starters, trillions in uh, rich natural resources in Western Ukraine, which exist, you have a titanic amount of control that is being fought for right now when it comes to the energy system of the world. You could look at Nord Stream, you could look at a lot of these things. But the fact of the matter is, there's a lot of countries that have grown tired of America's bullshit, and they're trying to find a way out of it. 
Uh, why, America's grown tired of America's bullshit. Yeah, why, why do you think the average American is just so naive as to what's going on in Ukraine and how they truly haven't learned anything from Iraq, Afghanistan, and the like? So, like you alluded to, the military-industrial complex, which is the blend of big business and the military establishment, wrapped up in nationalism, comes before the wars. We've had this since World War II. The wars come and go, the military-industrial complex stays. If, if we understand anything from tonight, that is it. The military-industrial complex comes before the wars. The wars are a natural result of this yes. blend of big business and military establishment. So let's look at what Trump did the Trump administration, the actions he took against Russia, because we are told that everything from, you know, Trump was a puppet of Moscow and they installed him in the White House, which is absurd, to the more uh, palatable Trump, you know, and Putin, they're just cozy, they're good buddies, that type of thing. So let's look at the facts. The Trump administration or the U.S. military during the Trump administration, and a lot of this requires White House approval, added more U.S. troops in Eastern Europe, including up to Russia's borders, built up U.S. military infrastructure in every single Eastern European country, except for Belarus, sold weapons to every single Eastern European country, except for Belarus, did military exercises in the Barents Sea, mm -hmm. uh, sanctioned senior Russian officials. That definitely requires White House approval. Did nice. all kinds of missile tests, okay, not just in Europe, but here in the United States. We always flip out and corporate media always goes berserk when North Korea launches a missile. We do that all the time at a Vandenberg <laughs> Air Force Base in California. Uh, we pulled out of arms treaties. Uh, the Open Skies Treaty we left in 2020, which was designed to foster a little bit of uh, transparency regarding our activities in our respective countries. In 2020, we pulled out of that. A few years earlier, we got out of the INF Treaty, which was basically designed to prevent a certain class of ground launcher um, from being deployed regarding a ground launcher for nuclear weapons. We further militarized space. That happened across the Clinton administration, Bush Jr. administration, Obama, and then you know with Trump, and again through Biden, continued all that. Uh, ramped up spending for nuclear weapons. That required White House approval. That happened during um, the Trump administration. Armed and trained Ukraine. That happened during the Trump administration. Bombed Syria and even killed Russian troops in one of the bombings of Syria, the U.S. government did. It, and so, I mean, the list goes on and on. We, we invested more money in hypersonic weaponry, pretending that the Chinese and the Russians were somehow ahead of us in that field. Um, you know, it's just, it goes on and on. Um, there was a- They're ahead uh, of us in infrastructure. Like, yeah, no, that's the thing. Fairly, <laughs> Not like, in military like, infrastructure. I was gonna say, like things that actually matter, that, that they're ahead of oh, us. Oh yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Trump also, um, he sanctioned Russian energy firms. He sanctioned firms that were 
um, involved in building Nord Stream pipelines and putting the final touches on those. I mean, the list goes on and on. So I, I, I go, I'm, I'm rambling here, but the, the point is that if you look at, the, if anybody looks at the facts, the Trump administration was aggressive, belligerent toward Moscow, period, full stop. Okay. So all of this militarization of Eastern Europe has been going on for decades. Now, if you're sitting in Moscow, you are not an irrational actor. You are not a madman. You have a uh, chain of command like any other country. We might not agree with all of your policies, foreign and domestic, but you're still a, a regional power. And you see this. You take note. You know what's going on. You understand, as Beijing understands, the nature of the U.S. military industrial complex. They see what's going on. And it's, um, you know... At every step of the way, they also say, hey, maybe we should um, come to an agreement on weapons in space. Beijing put out a proposal a few years ago. Moscow said, hey, we'll sign it. Washington ignored it. Or they'll say, hey, you know, cyberspace is getting a little, getting a little chippy. Maybe we should come up with an international agreement banning certain weapons in cyberspace. Now, the, the position in Washington, D.C. is, well, we right now are ahead in these tools, ahead in these capabilities. So why would we negotiate from this position when we are kicking keister in that category? And so uh, diplomacy is thrown away and militancy is embraced. And um, yeah, this what we're seeing in Ukraine is the direct result of a refusal to even acknowledge that... Moscow has genuine security concerns regarding the U.S. militarization of Eastern Europe that has occurred over, over decades across blue and red administrations. And it's an absolute tragedy, and the war needs to come to an end yesterday. Yeah. And, and for us, it's so beneficial in both regards. On the one hand, we love building up, you know, and putting our ships near them and having our exercises near them because it's very profitable to do so. And then we also win when we finally do provoke a response. Then we get the full time. Yeah, this is how I always describe it. It's like the little brother sitting in the car, like doing this. I and then the older brother me. smacks him. And then that's. The, but. You know, yeah. we, we, we don't get the full story, obviously, purposefully. Mm -hmm. And I see that we're heading for the exact same thing with China. And mm -hmm. nobody's talking about all of these things with us in Taiwan, I feel like is the equivalent of this. And mm -hmm. it, it really won't be any different except for the fact that with China, there's a serious economic problem there. Like we're going to have a serious problem that we're going to have to deal with, not necessarily militarily, but yeah. economically. And I don't know how that goes, but we are provoking them all the time. Yes. And it's not like, so it's not like Beijing is trying to pull Long Island off of the United States. Right. It is literally the U.S. government trying to do that with Taiwan. And Taiwan, mm -hmm. whether we like it or not, is historically part of mainland China. And the only reason that it is slightly a distinct political entity these days is because the side that lost the Civil War had to flee there and was protected by the U.S. Navy and has been there ever since. I mean, we, we there is absolutely zero, zero reason why 
provoking a conflict with respect to Taiwan against Beijing benefits the American public at all. <laughs> it's like it, it, the American public does not benefit at all from the upcoming conflict. And China has been incredibly clear. They cannot be more crystal clear. Mm-hmm. They say, look, we're not going to, we will, we are not going to lose Taiwan. We will try to resolve this peacefully, but it is an inter-Chinese conflict. It is not for Washington, D.C., let alone the military-industrial complex, to decide the fate of other nations. And, why, uh, yeah. why are the most dangerous people in Washington always ones that have never served in combat? <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's, uh, that's a really good point, although there, um, there are some incredible hawks these days, like... Um, uh, Tom Cotton. Doesn't Tom Cotton? Wasn't he? He did the, serve. Cotton served. Yeah, and he's a. He's, oh, he's as bad. Yeah, he's as bad as. Uh, uh, he's as bad as Lindsey Graham. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, but in general, guy. you make a. That is a good point. In general, they. Uh, it's usually the uh, the people who, you know, haven't seen the beast from the inside and are just taking campaign finance from the war industry and just. Yeah, I, I would definitely say that of all the years that I've been following politics, and it's been quite a few, um, the one person who stands out above the rest is definitely John Bolton. Um, he is somebody oh, yeah. who, to me, is the embodiment uh, of, if you if you want to talk about what a, what a real <laughs> chicken hawk really looks like, yeah. because as we've often talked about, I mean, look, there's not a lot of good things that Trump did as president, but he did too. He uh, axed the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was mm-hmm. great. And Hillary Clinton absolutely would have passed it. Oh, yes. Uh, In a heartbeat, yeah. And he did not start any new wars. Now, granted, he ramped up the drone program, but this is, you want to call that sort of a compromise as to- We have uh, a low bar here. You know, the (laughs) fact of the matter is they did everything in their capacity to get him to invade Syria. That they wanted it, they wanted it badly, and of course, everything always ends with trying to invade Iran, um, that is the end game. It always has been. Um, we were very lucky enough, uh, and I believe through the Eisenhower Media Network with assistance, uh, to have General Wesley Clark on the, on the podcast, and he talked about it uh, just the same. Um, it is the people who do not serve in combat. It is the war hawks in the Pentagon that are the most dangerous people in society. And of course, they're very often the most dangerous because they have major, major financial incentive to be that way. Absolutely. And so I would say um, the Pentagon is a really interesting ca- um, piece of this whole thing because back in the day, let's say, uh, let's say, all right, during Eisenhower's day, the people who ran the Pentagon, the top civilian offices in the Pentagon, the secretary, the various undersecretaries, for example, acquisition and sustainment or undersecretary for policy, these were people, these were career civil servants, people who rose up through the ranks in the U.S. government, and for better or for worse, you know, would land in one of these positions at the end of their career, and then they'd go and they retire and they they play golf. These days, yeah. the top secretary position and the undersecretary positions in the Pentagon go to the titans of industry. They spend a few years in the Pentagon, then they revolve back into <laughs> industry, and then sometimes they come back into the Pentagon. In, in the next administration. And um, I'm, working on a, I'm working on a book right now about the military industrial complex, in part during the coronavirus pandemic, during the first couple of years. Mm-hmm. And it's, 
Ellen Lord was a Textron executive. And she was in the undersecretary for acquisition and sustainment position during the coronavirus pandemic, during at least the first year and a few months. And she basically led the pen, she guided the Pentagon during that brief window where people were like, hey, maybe we will actually care for the American public and not funnel all our money into or most of our money into war and espionage. And she she handled it very, very well. She made sure that 2020 was far more profitable for the war industry than 2019. And then I believe it was in early 2021, she packed up and went back into industry. And now she, last time I checked, she was sitting as an advisor or a director on the board of at least seven war corporations, seven corporations in the business of war. So if you get paid, I don't know, let's say a generous amount of $50,000 to $100,000 for each of those positions, and I'm just spitballing on the very, very low end, you're making a, a, a healthy living right there. And it's, it's corruption baked in. So you have the top civilian positions in the Pentagon that are corrupt as all hell. And then you have the top officers, the four stars, the admirals and the generals who have been uh, yes men in order to get to that position. And then what do they do? Back in Eisenhower's day, they would retire and they'd play golf because in retirement, once you reach the three-star and the four-star level, in retirement, you get a very nice stipend from the U.S. government for the rest of your life. You don't need to go in, into industry. But what do they do today? I can't find a single four-star admiral or general over the last 20 years who has not profited from war in retirement. I mean, it is if you were to design a system that is corrupt in every part of it, it's the military-industrial complex. And I'm happy to talk about some of these generals, but um, it's just uh, – it's, it's No, we'll definitely, no. We'll, we'll definitely bring you back again. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't at all surprise me. It doesn't at all surprise me because we see it in other parts of our government. It's the same yeah. thing. Mm -hmm. You know, we have people that are representatives that are making a really nice salary to do a job, and yet that's not enough. They still have to take on the side from all these different people. It's like it's never enough. And it's the same thing in retirement for these people. Like, I don't get it. All I want to do is retire. Like, <laughs> like I cannot, what, what is, I don't, you know, I get, it's just greed to me. You just cannot have enough money. Well, it, it, it's very up close and personal for us because Jen ran for Congress in 2020 against right. one of the most notorious, uh, you know, what, and again, when you think of, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, there's a lot of different things that come to mind. But the one thing that most Ethical. people do not generally think of when they think of Wasserman Schultz, first off, is what an absolute shill for the military industrial oh, yeah. complex that she is. She's Big one time. of the absolute worst I've ever seen. Yeah. And most people don't know that. I mean, this is a person who's talking about invading Venezuela. Uh -huh. Like, that's right. how nuts she is. She still, well, yeah, she's on that whole Juan Guaido is the actual uh, president <laughs> of Venezuela uh, yep. bandwagon yeah. and other sordid imperialistic things that she does. But yeah, that's just normal to her is this very war hawk mentality. She's never met a war. She hasn't met a war she hasn't agreed with. And that is the problem in the Pentagon and in DC politics in general. And 
I think the best place to wind down the conversation is one of the worst aspects of this whole conundrum Mm -hmm. is the fact that even though we have an independent media channel that does have a good subscriber base, we do get pretty good views on our shorts and our clips. Our live stream is definitely suppressed. We've been able to establish that pretty effectively. Corporate media is still very powerful. And whether it's MSNBC, CNN, Fox News, but especially on MSNBC today and the way the party has to. And let's be honest, a lot of this shift in the Democratic Party was a direct result of Bernie Sanders and the left wing populist movement that was attempting to infiltrate the party, which could have pulled it off if they you know, had the balls of a Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. But the bottom line is they have allowed they have thrown out the welcome mat to the Bill Crystals and the Anna Navarro's yeah. and the they're leaning you know, John to the right. Boltons of they're the leaning world. to the right instead of to the left. That's what they're doing. And these individuals who literally have this sort of revolving door of politics. But I would say that the moment that really captured just how low they were willing to sink in order to try to smear Trump was when Bill Maher had John Brennan on his uh, show. And at that point, I was just like, this really is about the machine protecting itself and nothing more. They don't care how bad this looks. They just care that people know that there's a fox in the hen house, no matter how nuts he is, even though it should have been Bernie who should have been there and hopefully could have made some real wholesale changes that we could have really used. But the idea that you think that getting to Trump is by having on one of the most despicable war criminals. And that is what John Brennan is. He is a war criminal of the highest order. And to to, to have him be the arbiter of truth, talking Mm. about how Trump is such a bad guy. And I'm thinking it really sucks when people like us really know the score and like 99% of the people have no freaking clues to what's going on. That is a very lonely place to be in. But that was a moment where I just thought, yeah, the power of corporate media is very real and and people still don't fully grasp how dangerous that is. Yeah, no, it's it's terrifying. You guys are in Florida, right? Yes. Can I ask what part? We're South Florida. We're in Broward County in in a town called Plantation. Okay. We're about, I don't know. 20 minutes. Not even, not even like six miles or so directly west. Of Fort Lauderdale. Okay. Um, I want to look that up because I'm doing a uh, sort of a mapping project uh, in my spare time for uh, where the military industrial complex is is located, like the actual facilities are. (laughs) And there's a bunch in Florida. I don't know about um, South Florida, but there's some um, near um, Cape Canaveral. Yeah, Fort Walton Beach, I believe. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, in the very in the very red pockets of the state, you have that. But what Florida does have, which is a very unfortunate distinction, we're the number one state in the country for for-profit prisons. So, oh, oh yeah, not a uh, not a totally unheralded. We've got thing. a very nice complex. Where are you located? I'm in New England. I'm in Rhode Island. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I don't know. We got we have our own problems with um, Senator Jack Reed, who is uh, on the uh, the old guy. 
Armed Services Committee. Yeah, and he takes uh, the senator from Raytheon. We call him here because oh, just- that's nice. I, I happen see, to- in Rhode Island's a state where I would run a statewide race. I've told yeah. you I would only do a statewide race if I lived in a state like Rhode Island or Delaware or Delaware. Yeah, right, so right. Not- yeah, yeah. Right. No, you'd crush it. You'd right. Crush no, it. I could run no, a statewide I, race. Look, there. I, I was at the. Um, Christian, what is the name of that uh, vegan restaurant that's unbelievable that's in Providence? I can't think of it right now. The name's- You're assuming he lives in Providence. No, but he probably knows the place. Although Um, if you probably stretch your arms like this, you probably reach city to city, right? (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) There's one- um, Throw me the name. I'm not good with the vegan stuff. I'm sorry. It's a great restaurant. I got to tell you. Is it in a plaza sort of set back from the road on the right-hand side? Yes. Yeah. uh, Right by the water. Right by the water. I think the thing about Rhode Island is like the Johnny Cakes. Is that what it is? Is that a thing? <laughs> Sorry, Johnny when I Cakes. No, I mean maybe. Maybe thing? I'm a bad I'm Rhode Islander. Islander. Are you from Rhode Island? Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I don't think anyway, I've met anybody uh, from Rhode Island. I, anyway, I have a friend of a friend who was out to lunch at this restaurant who happens to be mm. one of uh, Reed's top people who's on Ooh. staff and everything. And, yeah, yeah. You know, it's like, well, you know, Jack is this and that. And I'm, I'm like, I'm biting my tongue here. I'm like. I kind of know a lot about this stuff, and I'm uh, I'm unfortunate I cannot I cannot tell you that he's a great guy because I can't. Yeah. And so, yeah, we have. I'm, but then again, yeah, Johnny Cakes. I'm not crazy. Yeah. <laughs> okay, uh, you're clearly not watching enough Guy Fieri. That's the problem right there because that's, that's how I know everything. Now, even yeah. though you may feel bad about having Senator Jack Reed, just remember mm-hmm. you don't have Senator Rick Scott, so hey, it, yeah. it can never be as bad. Could be worse. Yeah. Yes. Yikes. Dell's is- lemonade. That's another thing. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, okay. And- yeah. I have a whole thing. Like if I were to go there, I always go just like on a food tour, wherever I go, it's all about the food. I think these conversations are extremely important. It is of immense importance to us. And we are also very grateful for the relationship we have formed with the Eisenhower Media Network. Always this good. is certainly no exception. Um, the information that you've provided this evening it, frankly, we were just talking about it when we were on mute very briefly that there were things you said tonight that even I didn't know. Um, God, especially, go for, yeah, God forbid, I don't know. know any shit, right? uh, especially regarding uh, the behaviors of the generals. And uh, It doesn't and surprise me. Once, look, as, an, as somebody who used to really have respect for our Supreme Court as somebody from the legal field, like m- that's been shattered for so many years. Like, yeah. why would this be any different? Like, I'm sitting here and looking at the people who are supposed to be the top jurists of our country, and they are just despicable human beings. So why would I not think it would be the same for yeah. other industries in our government. Like, I'm not at all surprised, but yet it's disgusting. The one silver lining that I think we can take from this conversation and sort of like where we're heading right now, even though there are massive efforts by the powers that be to suppress information, and everyone says that it's the Republicans, and it's it's both sides. It's, it's all mm-hmm. one shit show, and they all do it uh, because everything is about protecting corporate special interests, and that's it. However... I think there is sort of a yearning for truth today. I mean, real truth, not the- It's just hard to get. It's just hard to get, but there is. It's hard to get it. But I do think a lot of people are questioning it. I don't think there there would be any way that you could get, you know, 20,000 American troops to go to, you know, the Ukraine-Russia border right now. Uh, I think there really is this questioning of war that has not really happened in a long time. It's become much more modern, and I think people are just getting sick of it. But I also think they understand that pretty much everything that goes on in foreign policy is about making money. 
It is not about protecting this planet. It is not about. It, I don't feel safer. Yeah. I got to tell you, I'm not feeling safe. And if, and if, if war budget actually made us safer, this is what I say. Like if more prisons and more policing, we'd be the safest country in the world. And yet we're not. We should also know <laughs> that maybe the biggest reason above all others is many reasons why we don't have universal education and universal health care. But pretty much at the top of the list, if we had universal education and universal health care, I mean, they have a hard enough problems as it is recruiting people into the military. Yep. They might as well stop trying if they had those things at their disposal, because that's one of the biggest reasons why people join. And we have had congressional can, uh, candidate guests that have been on our show specifically saying that the reason I joined the military was that I could get my education and my health care. Yep. And so it was the jobs program. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's a big part. Are of you it. a musician by any chance? No, no, why do you ask? I don't know. You sort of have this, I get this sort of Phil Collinsy vibe from you. <laughs> but when we looked you up in the picture, you had like this whole beard thing going on. And I just shaved, and, yeah. Yeah, and, and and we were a little bit disappointed because like you that. Know, was, I didn't give a shit. No, yeah. I was disappointed only because it's like that's a beard, man. That is a beard. Like and yeah, you know, after a while grooming like, becomes yeah. a pain in the ass. So yeah, I mean, well, that's yeah. the thing. My son is like, I don't want to shave, I'm just gonna let it grow. I'm like, you think that's lower maintenance, but it isn't. It's no, not it's easy pain. to take care of it. Yeah. yeah. Summer vibes, though. It's the summer. I gotta I gotta go clean and then we'll we'll start again in the fall. Definitely looks cooler in terms of temperature wise. How long would it take you to grow it? Uh, back to that length, six months. It's, really, uh, it comes fast. in. It comes in pretty well. Uh, yeah, go. it all transferred from the top down. <laughs> Christian, <I'll take> it. <laughs> Christian, how can people follow your work if they want to get in touch? Uh, you can get in touch via the Eisenhower Media Network. You can search for that. Uh, my website is War Industry Muster M U S T E R dot com. That's where I post all of the uh, distillations that I produce every month. I go through all of the Pentagon's contracting announcements and I simplify them and I put them out so the American public can actually see where all the money is going. And I can't find a single contract that. Uh, that actually makes us safer. So uh, warindustrymuster.com. Thank you very, very much. Stay well, and we will definitely have We'll you have back. you back, especially when you have a new book. Absolutely. Definitely. Thank you Thank so you. much. This was a real treat. Thank, Thank you. you, Christian. Bye. Take care. Yeah. Uh, I it, love all those great. vet guys. I do. I love them. And Jessica, great to see you on the show tonight. Uh, yeah. I mean, look. There's a reason why. I know. Well, Delaware I, is a whole other thing. Delaware is the the. There's got to be a good nickname for Delaware. There's got to be. It, like, they, they do have one. It's like corporate purse or something ridiculous. It has to do with where all the corporations are filed. All corporations are registered. In I Delaware. guess if you're wondering why the economy continues going corporate straight hoarding. to hell with our current president, who was the senator from Delaware. What what did they used to say about Biden that he well he was always in the pocket of the of the yeah I mean I don't know industry. but the thing about Delaware is it is basically like the Cayman Islands haven, it is it's the, the Cayman States. Islands of our, and so it it makes sense to me but yeah like I always joke about yeah I would run a statewide race if our state was that small I would in Rhode Island oh my God that is probably smaller than our it's probably the same size as our congressional yeah, district probably. I mean Florida, I can't imagine well yeah Rhode Island is about small maybe a 25th or a 30th the size of Florida landmass. So yeah, I mean, we're pretty big here. Yeah. So uh, yeah. Kind of a big deal and not an individual. We're a big deal. So we got one story to cover before we go. And obviously it's a big one. Uh, what are we talking? Uh, unfortunately, our 
former president and this want-to-be next president really think that the key to winning the presidency is to talk about abortion all the time and not in the right way, in the wrong way. They think the right way is the right way. No, the right way is the wrong way by basically saying you're not conservative enough. Well, I am interested to see if Trump, see, my thought is if Trump yes, really was, wanted. Gary. Great to see you. Thank you. My thought is this and if, and about Trump is that if he really wanted to win, he'd have to go to the left and just own being pro-choice and just say, all right, I'm not going to get the evangelicals. But the, but the truth is, is that DeSantis went too far. And now I think he's gotten more niche. There's people that just will not go for that. I really, uh, I mean, again, uh, you know, I won't I was go for that. Well, I was thinking about at length exactly what it was that, DeS- what was DeSantis's game plan? Because I'm, we're usually pretty good at kind of figuring out exactly what these I guys are I am up surprised. To. I was surprised that he did that. I thought that it would just be too negative towards his idea of running for president. I mean, it is very much not a winner in terms of subject matter on national scale. And I really thought it was a bad move. So now the fact that he's sort of baiting Trump, it's interesting to see what Trump's going to do with this. Because he's never, Trump has never really taken a stand. He always skirts the issue. He says things like, Let's get well, back to the, well the people that are pro-choice are radicals or the the that overturning Roe versus Wade was good. But he says things without really stating his opinion on whether or not he supports a woman's right to Double choose. Okay, I will give you Bill. He speaks uh, out of both sides. I will give you Bill after we do this segment. But uh, we definitely have to pull up this article because I think it's very important. It definitely is very relevant here because The Hill, I mean, again, a lot of outlets covered this, but here it is in The Hill. DeSantis takes swipe at Trump over six-week abortion ban in Florida. It's like, We've been so used to this governor making all the right moves, no pun intended. Politically. But now this really is the hill he wants to die on. And he will. But I figured out exactly why he thinks he needs to die on this hill. Because ultimately what DeSantis is doing is very much what Buttigieg, even though Buttigieg was clearly a Manchurian candidate of sorts back in 2020, is he's going all in on Iowa. He is banking on this idea that he is going to win Iowa and use that as a springboard to carry momentum to become the nominee. That's the only reason, because the evangelical vote in Iowa is very strong. And history has shown over the course of the history of the GOP primary, particularly in the last like 20 years. I mean, think about it. You're talking. I don't know. You had George George W. Bush, who won it in 2020 or 2000. You had Mike Huckabee, Mr. Super Sky Angels conservative in 2008, win the primary. You had Rick Santorum, who's like, I got you one better when it comes to my Christian faith in 2012. And then, of course, you had slimeball Ted Cruz in 2016. So what we're saying is, in uh, and what's interesting is we've had a lot of really good populist guests from Iowa, and I know that that state is a very Rust Belt working class, 100%. like middle America state, but apparently there is this sort of like fringe evangelical group Especially that apparently- on the GOP side. Well, right, that apparently has sort of hijacked their party politics because Correct. that does not sound representative to me 
of like the good people of Iowa. It just doesn't. It sounds sort of like how Florida is not being represented. When he was basically lining himself up, let's say a year ago before the whole culture war stuff really started to take off, he looked like the type of guy who was literally going to walk into New Hampshire and win the state. Now, what he's backing on is I'm going to win Iowa. I'm going to be competitive in New Hampshire and I'm going to win South Carolina. That's what he's thinking. That's his mindset, because there is no other explanation for this behavior. Well, he's done. He's crunched the numbers as people have crunched the numbers. And they realize that at the end of the day, um, the Democrats have nobody. And all he really has to do is win the primary. Because at the end of the day, the Democrats have nothing. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis went after former President Trump over his stance on abortion restrictions, saying Tuesday that Trump dodged questions about whether he would sign a bill similar to the six-week abortion ban signed by DeSantis. It's as if to say, let's... Here's the difference between the messaging that Trump put out there versus the message that DeSantis put out there and why DeSantis is infinitely more dangerous on this particular issue. Trump specifically said, let's leave it up to the states, let the states decide what they want to do with abortion. And you know what's been happening since the states have decided on abortion? What do you think's been happening? They've been codifying Roe in all blue and red states. And the only states that are not codifying Roe are the ones that are not allowing it to be put up for a vote. So that tells you all you need to know, whereas somebody like DeSantis doesn't give a shit what the people want. That's frankly what a dictator does, which is to say, I'm judge, jury and executioner here, and I'm going to tell you what you're going to take. And that is because of regard. Again, he's Catholic and most Catholics, I, you know, my father's Irish Catholic. I, I grew up in that environment. I could tell you right now that this is in no way, shape or form how the Catholics operate. They are very religious in their own lives, much like my best friend's mother, who, when I go visit, decides to hand me a rosary and uh, a abortion, uh, anti-abortion card with a dead fetus. So that's how crazy they are. But do they take it to the extent that evangelicals take it, which is to basically say, F your politics, F what you believe. I don't give a shit. I am taking the right away from you. And that is how the evangelical right thinks. If you really want to know where the dividing line is, it's in the criminalization process. Because people that are pro-life do not necessarily want women and doctors to be criminalized um, just because they don't agree with somebody's decision. They don't like it, but that doesn't necessarily mean they think we should take away their rights. That's just the way it is. The bill in Florida, which DeSantis signed last month, has infuriated abortion rights advocates. And keep in mind, as we talk about, he did this under the cover of night on at the beginning of the weekend. He did it when he didn't want anyone to know about it or even talk about it. So he clearly didn't want the fanfare because he knows it's a shit idea. But in his mind, and listen, Is it possible that he's simply doing this because he wants to be president and he thinks this is the pathway to do it, but wouldn't actually do this if he got to the White House? Maybe so. But let's not take that chance. Yeah. Not a good plan. Not not, not a good plan. Very, very stupid. And unfortunately, people will fall for that type of crap. DeSantis says offense against Trump on abortion comes after the former president took a victory lap on the issue during his CNN town hall last week, taking credit for the fall of Roe v. Wade. After confirming Supreme Court justices that solidified its conservative majority, which is true. But when pressed on whether he would sign a national abortion ban, as many anti-abortion groups are demanding, Trump would not commit. And you know what? He wouldn't do it. I reject the Hill using the term anti-abortion. What would you use? Uh, Forced birth or anti-choice. 
<laughs> because when you say anti-abortion, again, that that means that there's pro-abortion people. And that's just a false thing. That's just not a thing. I definitely agree. I'm, and- I find the whole thing disgusting. And I, yeah. I'm just not having it. I just think it, it, for those that are trying to figure out exactly where DeSantis's head is at and why he's doing this, the only sensible explanation is that he's going all in to win Iowa. That's his plan. And hopes that that will, in will and of itself, springboard yeah. him and that the numbers will, again, momentum is very fickle in politics. It but it really matters is. the most. It really does. And Yeah. Like, do not underestimate how contentious this primary could actually become from a momentum standpoint if DeSantis wins Iowa, is very competitive in New Hampshire, and somehow wins South Carolina, there's no question he could win the nomination. That's what he's backing on. He's backing on this idea that I'm going to get to Super Tuesday against Trump, and I'm going to have a coin flips chance of winning this thing. And then again, what my thing is, is that the Democrats have no resistance. So all he has to do is beat Trump. That's basically it. And you know what the big difference is, ladies and gentlemen, between the Democrats and the Republicans when it comes to the nomination process? The Republicans allow for an actual primary. So this is going to be a real fight. The Republican establishment is not putting their thumb on the scale for Donald Trump. That is not happening. But they're going to but they're going to, you know, they're going to have it out. Unfortunately, the issues that they're going to probably have it out on are the ones that have no bearing on what actually is affecting our everyday lives. No. And neither is the neither is Joe Biden. Well, here's the thing. The abortion thing does affect people's lives in a sense that we're going to have increased mortality rates. And there are a lot of women that are now having a lot of reproductive health care problems. And and that is going to affect people's lives. And don't forget. And let's not underestimate just how much the Democratic establishment heads, particularly Biden and Pelosi, who are both Catholic and are both pro-life, the votes throughout their career, no matter what Pelosi says, no matter what Biden says, they have allowed these things to happen. You don't hear them getting on the bullhorn in every blue state and every swing state saying, get abortion rights on the ballot. We're doing this here in Florida. We're taking initiative. Speaking of which, people, if you live in Florida, you will be approached at some point. Please sign the abortion ballot initiative. We're going to be canvassing. Yeah, we're going to be canvassing. I am still, you know, I am trying to get this thing up and running. But yes, but the regional hub is actually the DEC, which is not far. So that's actually convenient for me. Yeah, it's here in Plantation. So, yeah, we'll uh, we'll be working on that. But apparently, before we go, I, I, the, the, the great Slick Willie himself has been summoned for an important conversation about what's going on. So for our lovely Double K and anybody else who has to hear from him. Uh, Jen, it's great to see you. You know, of course, I had to come on this evening and uh, talk about the big story. Uh Remember, I don't inhale, so don't blow that in my direction. You gotta behave yourself with that. Ever. Slick Willie don't. Ugh. Slick Willie never actually inhaled, and of course, that's why I didn't sign it into law. So, to the American people out there who are wondering exactly what I think about what Rudy Giuliani actually did with getting a a Slick Willie job, <laughs> uh, it's uh, 
it's really unfortunate. What are we talking about with Rudy Giuliani? Is that the thing? All I saw was a video of him like shaving in the airport. Oh, well. I saw a video of him shaving in the airport, which just looked very non-hygienic and disgusting. Uh, I don't know what you're talking about. Well, Mr. Giuliani, unfortunately, has been getting himself into quite a bit of trouble. Uh, You know. Oh, uh, another lawsuit, I see. Yeah, it's it's definitely not looking good. Uh, oh, the, another sexual assault allegation is what it is. Yeah. I, how how uncomfortable does that make you to even talk about that? Because it's really, to me, you're like in a glass house situation. You really want to go down that trail? Uh, I mean, listen, it's a lot easier to do it when it's a Republican who did it, because yeah. unfortunately, only one side seems to get in trouble. Was Rudy Giuliani on Epstein's Island? Uh, I don't know what you're talking about, so I can't really speak to it. But uh, well, at least she's not unattractive. Well, you know, she's a lovely gal, and that's why I want to hear what she has to say. Yeah, so I'm let's sure. listen to some of my favorite television show, uh, Inside Edition. <laughs> you know, Inside. <laughs> it's really great. So let's pop this up here and. Uh, I going to find out I exactly what I don't think this... you should be pointing out sexual assault allegations. Well, listen, I point out a lot of things and that doesn't exactly get me into the good graces of Hillary, but you know, I got to I got to keep my nothing reputation. from the good graces of Hillary. Uh, listen, until the day I die, I'm going to keep my reputation exactly where it is and that ain't going to change. So, I hope y'all are going to enjoy this. It's really great. Double K uh, uh, listen, K. I don't know if you want me to like dance for you or do something really <laughs> slick, but uh you know, I mean, normally I'm only offered I'm only offered twenty dollars for me to actually come on and uh, you know perform. But, but yeah, like for that kind of money, I almost feel up. like I should get you a set of pasties. I, I should uh, <laughs> I should definitely flex and stretch and uh, Jen, get out of here. This is my show now, so. I think y'all uh, just better get ready. But listen, I there's a lovely lady there that has a lot to say about this. So let's get to it. Let's hear what she has to say about all oh, Rudy uh, getting a little fruity tooty. Do claiming Giuliani's a former employee is suing him for $2 million in unpaid wages, alleging that while she worked as his business development director, he coerced her into having sex. And she says she has proof. In her only television interview, she spoke exclusively with Inside Edition's Amber Cagliano. And we should warn you, some of what she has to say may not be appropriate for younger viewers. She's the Ivy League graduate making bombshell accusations against Rudy Giuliani. There was a lot of pressure to be Rudy's girlfriend as well as his staffer. Noelle Dumphy just filed a $10 million lawsuit claiming Giuliani sexually exploited her and failed to pay her when she says she was his director of business development from 2019 to 2021. Was this a working relationship that turned into romance? Was it a consensual romantic relationship? We did get involved romantically, uh, but I knew what could happen if I said no. I could lose my job. There's high pay, White House access. It's exciting. And then there's this obligation or pressure to also be physical. The 43-year-old says they worked out of his Manhattan apartment and that 78-year-old Giuliani often demanded that she work naked in a bikini or in short shorts. It quickly turned in to a requirement for keeping my 
job. She claims that Giuliani demanded intimacy while on the phone with clients, including President Trump. When Rudy was on legal calls with President Trump, he required and expected me to be pleasing him during his calls with President Trump. After the calls, Rudy would want to be with me physically and have me address Rudy as Mr. President. Dumphy spoke to Inside Edition in January. In her blockbuster lawsuit, she attaches this text message purportedly from Giuliani. Mm -hmm. Good morning, my love. Tried to call, Giuliani writes. Mm -hmm. Let me quickly shower. Can I shower mm -hmm. with you? He replies. He was in the midst of a messy divorce from his wife, Judith, and allegedly wanted to keep their relationship quiet. I was asked to be a secret employee. I was not on the books. Instead of a steady paycheck, she says Giuliani gave her the occasional $5,000 cash payment. I said, can't you finally make me official as your employee? And he said, no, because Judith will know. His wife would know that I was his type and that I'm being paid um, at the, at the company. Giuliani's lawyer says he unequivocally denies the allegations. He's denying all of the allegations and he's saying you never worked for him. One of the things Rudy liked to talk about aside from sex was his ability to lie. So am I surprised that Rudy is lying again? I can't say I'm surprised, but it still hurts. It's scary to take on a powerful man but I know I'm telling the truth 100%. And I know I have so much evidence that is black and white that there's no way that the, that the truth doesn't get out. Well, as you can see, uh, it really is uh, unfortunate that he thought he could compete with me when it comes to getting the job done in the White House and uh, not just any job. A slick willy job. That's what I call it, Jen, by the way. Gross. I don't know if you know that or not. Uh, so gross. But unfortunately, uh, yeah, he, uh, Rudy's not a sight for sore eyes. I Ugh. happen to be. Um, so disgusting. He's kind of a gremlin in a lot of ways. He is. Um, he looks like a I'm troll. about a foot taller than he is. So I'm constantly looking down at the little man. and uh, Well, he is definitely a very little man. Oh, he's a little man in more ways than one. He makes her say, calls him Mr. President. Oh, he really. Oh, wow. He, no, he really thought. I he believe everything that she says. Yeah, I uh, do. I believe I, everything that she says. Uh, the only reason I was so enamored with her is because I really couldn't take my eyes off her. Lord knows she can't take her eyes off anything. They're so big. But let's be honest, uh, she's a real peach, and I wouldn't mind getting to know her. So, uh, young lady, whatever well, your name is, I, I couldn't remember. I just was kind of you know she was willing to basically be his side piece for money. She was willing to do that, and hey, I, I have no, pro I have no problem with that I whatsoever. Have absolutely no problem with that whatsoever. That's also, a consenting I am, I am adult situation. I, I find him grotesque. Well, I find him grotesque too, and I'm pretty horrible myself. So, you know, if, if I think he's horrible. I, I, you know, and I think that, but think. yet, and, and I don't, you know, I question how much, like, there's no amount of money wherein I would be anywhere near him. So I kind of question her uh, judgment as far to, as that's concerned. This. I have to do it. Oh, you got to look at my baby <laughs> out there. That's for you. Uh, I love you. You're really, really something. Uh, you know, I said I work hard for the money, and my God, am I working hard or what? Uh, 
But unfortunately for Mr. Giuliani, if he pulled up his shirt and did something like that, I, I think everyone it. would feel over and die. Oh my God! All All right. So that was that was an eyeful. So Um, thank you for that. So in that so in that sense, uh, you are white. I'm definitely white. I must support the show. uh, Do what you got to do. It's only because I came on here that made it that much more enjoyable. Oh yeah, it it made it so much more enjoyable. uh, Look, Rudy, you're gonna be paying out your ass for a long time. So disgusting. You're not very smart. You definitely should have just given her a little something. But My you- point is, is that I definitely question her judgment and her choices, but I a thousand percent believe what she's saying. So, uh, yeah, uh-huh. I find her very credible. If anybody knows about a person telling the truth or telling a lie, I can definitely assure you that that lady is 100 percent full on true. And I'll be true to you if you give me a call. So, <laughs> bye. Stop. Can't even look at you. Yes, right that was fun. <laughs> Can't even look at you. You probably get flagged down for that shit. Uh, we so, can't get any. We can't yeah. even get past fifteen viewers anymore. I feel no, like we're we so shadow banned. That we are. No, we are. I mean, listen. How do we get hundreds and hundreds? Of I don't know. I don't know how do dissidents does it. Well. They, yeah, I mean, I, I know a few of the people on here watch do dissonance and watch Status Coup and all that, but it, it would amaze I don't me. understand how we don't have, like. No, I think. What are we doing wrong? We have a marketing problem. Maybe we do. Well, Nolan wants to help us with, like, I think social media and marketing. And I don't know if you want any sort of, like, to possibly, I don't know, consider maybe. I don't know if that's the answer. I, I don't know what's the answer. That. We need something. Well, we got to work on it, but we have a wonderful supporting group and we are very grateful for that. Thank you, Sable. Tomorrow at 9 p.m., we will have our Gen Z report. Oh, no, not this week. Okay, so Gen Z report, not this week. No, because we have one, two, three people that are like summer vacay right now and it's just not... We're working on getting a rotating hosting team, which I yeah. think will do the show a lot better. And I would like so, to get more people. We need to get more people. But one of said people is more interested in some other things helping us. But anyway. Fair enough. That's Hey, listen, if that's, but, that's, that's fine. Yeah. And so, well, the topic will be basically Gen Z and the employment world and what that future is and what that looks so like be for next, them. So that's next, uh, next Thursday? Thursday. Yeah, that way okay. everybody will have like people will be back. And, right. and I don't want to feel like I'm pushing it. And plus, then I don't have to fight with you about tomorrow night. Fair enough. Uh, for next Monday, we are in the process of getting a guest. We are trying to get... Who? Uh, well, who, who? interestingly enough, uh, I mean, it's really just a matter of time before Governor DeSantis does declare for uh, his candidacy for president of the United States. It's pretty obvious that that's what's happening. Uh, there was an excellent article written by David Sirota's The Lever. Uh, one of the writers was able to uncover a massive pay-to-play operation that the Is same- David Sirota coming? No, I don't oh. think he's going to be able to make it. I'll ask him, but he's gonna. we're going to have uh, the writer of this article from The Lever come on to talk about exactly what he's uncovered regarding the pay-to-play operation that DeSantis has been running. We're already well aware of a couple of things that he's done. Wait, are you? State. I still don't understand how he was able to allocate the funds- how he will be able to allocate the governor funds to the presidential race. I don't understand how that happened. And I don't understand 
wherein he got confirmation that he can run without stepping away as governor. No, I definitely, well, I definitely agree. There's uh, all sorts of weird shenanigans going on about that. Sure. No, and I that's why he hasn't declared. There's a whole bunch of ducks yeah, that had to get in a row to, uh, about this. He's trying to get his ducks in a row. No he was, pun, no there's, a, there's a chunk of money that yeah. needs to be able to be funneled. And I don't know, I... I don't know what tens of millions of dollars. It's about a hundred million dollars because he only used about half his treasure trove in his race for governor. So he's sitting on about a hundred million dollars. And he's going to put, he'll put 25 million into Iowa. Guaranteed. Well, I, I, again, he still has to come up with technically he's not allowed to use that money for a presidential campaign. And so I don't know. That's what a pack is for. Yes. That's what's going to happen. But the money, I know there's going to be, it'll be, you know what? It'll all go through Delaware. (laughs) Come on, man. (laughs) It'll all go through Delaware. But anyway, that's a lot of paper trailing he's got to do. And then on Wednesday, we are going to have our friend of the show, Carol Roth, who is going to come on and talk about her latest book. Um, But you're going to read. Yes. Okay. Well, I'm, well, we're not going to have a copy of it yet, but I'm gonna. There's going to be a way for me to read it, okay. so I'm going to be able to get at least a, an idea. Because you have to. Yes. Uh, I think what we could do is try to set up a podcast not on Memorial Day, which will be the following Monday, but on Wednesday, we should try to organize a podcast to promote our efforts here in Florida to get the ballot signatures. Yeah, and I'm actually thinking that the gathering that we might end up doing will not be Memorial Day weekend, but will in fact be the first weekend in June. I might do it then. So you think that's a good time? I think, well, it's going to be hot and I'd like to do it indoors, but I think that's better than Memorial Day weekend. Okay. So, and then still before I leave for North Carolina, that's really what I'm thinking. But so for Memorial Day, I don't know. Um, I don't know. I don't agree, Sable. I just don't agree because I think when the American public really starts paying attention, there's just going to be no way to hide well, Biden. And here's how, how I here, – here's, here's, here's my thoughts on it. So I am one of those people that held my nose and did vote for Joe, okay? And I will not do it again, and I assure you I'm not alone, and he barely won. So that's why I'm not – and I'm not saying I'm voting for Trump because I wouldn't do that either, but I won't vote for Joe. And I know that that there's a lot of people in my well, same and category. So, and if you if he barely won, how does that work? Well, it doesn't matter what we do here because Florida is going red in the general election in 24 when it comes mm-hmm. to the presidency. Uh, appreciate the advice, Brenda. As far as states like where Double K is in Wisconsin, as far as states like Pennsylvania, Arizona, Georgia, the states that are going to play in 20, possibly New Hampshire. I think New Hampshire is going to be in play and could definitely lean red because of what the Democrats are doing to screw them over. You know, here's the thing about the way the Democrats have been doing it the last several election cycles. Iowa and South Carolina are clearly red. Nevada was red for a long time. Now it's a swing blue. So that state makes sense. And of course, New Hampshire has been a swing state and has been swinging blue. But if you're going to piss off New Hampshire, that's not going to help you. At all. In fact, it's going to hurt. And if you think that's swinging four electoral votes. Well, Joe, Joe is under the impression that he will only do well going with South Carolina. That that's Which is a his very, best very move. poor decision. If you have no momentum, if you have no energy, if there's one thing that Trump will have he and possibly the so Santa's the black have, vote. Yeah, which is a very poor decision because you can't 
you can't fake momentum. The reason why Trump lost and not Biden won is because of COVID. Yes. You don't have that at your disposal now. And now you're really going down a, a deep, dark hole if you think that you're going to go with Joe again. Now, what I would say is that if you are going to go with Joe, remember this. There are no excuses for Joe Biden. Zero. He is the president of the United States. He has executive authority to give the working people of this country who desperately need help, help. a huge helping hand to ensure that he can get reelected. If he doesn't do it and he loses, it's on his ass. No matter how many people tell you that he is entitled to your vote, he's not. Eventually, you have to break from your abuser because that's what it is. It's an abusive relationship with the Democratic Party. Now, I am a Democrat, and I absolutely think where it matters most is at the local level. But Florida is of, not going to be of consequence, so I'm not concerned. Well, Double K, the thing about South, I mean, I'm not sure exactly what you mean, like what the F is South Carolina. I mean, it's in a sense that I think that the Democrats presume, and rightfully it's been evidence, that they have a lot of pull there and that they're able to get their people in line there by people like Jim Clyburn. Karina, I would say that the following, the states that will be in play for the GOP in 24 will be Arizona uh, because of the whole, uh, uh, the whole cinema, uh, whatever that whole the cinema with Carrie Lake. And of course, with yeah. Katie Hobbs, uh, Georgia is absolutely going to be in play because of Brian Kemp. Uh, Michigan will stay blue. I believe Nevada will stay blue. Uh, Pennsylvania. I mean, look, the best thing Pennsylvania has going for it, quite Fetterman. frankly, is John Fetterman. Well, Fetterman yeah. is one of the be- like, I'm so pleased Every time I see him, he's such a good senator. He, you can already see he I gets like it. it. And you know what? And first of all, can I just say I love the wife? Yeah, Giselle, all, Giselle loves you too, by the way. Okay, I love her. Can you get her on? First of all, every time that she, first of all, she looks adorable. Okay, and I love that she's just her own. The her styles, her style, she's friggin' awesome. And I every time they post something, well, he, okay. In all fairness, he does kind of remind me of like Lurch, but like. Every time they post something about them. He's been Lurch for Halloween. Don't kid yourself. Any of these events, their presence at those events pleases me to no end. Pleases me to no end because those are the most regular people. He is the most regular person in the Senate. Like, pleases me. And let's be honest. He probably is in the U.S. Senate for no other reason than the fact that he ran against Dr. Oz. But you know what? He's there. I'll take it. And he's there fighting on behalf of working people. And in the U.S. Senate, there's not a lot of them that do. No. There's a very few. Well, because he's really the, who else in there is really a regular guy? Bernie. Even Bernie, he's just been for so many years at yeah, this point. Yeah, that's true. So, and, and again, I, I always say, Bernie tends, his positions are good. I'm not saying that, but he's not a regular guy anymore. Okay. No, and Karina, you're absolutely right because- Fetterman is not so Fetterman is also somebody who cheated death. He had a severe stroke and he is looking at it like, hey, this is a free freaking ride, man. I might only be here for one or two terms. He's anyway. going to make the most of so it. He's like, I'm, six making years the, there? I'm making the most of this thing. I like know? it. And I, I, I just like that. And it's They're always bringing this whole spice. And to on the top of thing. everything else, Pennsylvania is a state of consequence. It's a true swing state. So yeah. use your power. It's there. It they is. can piss and moan and kick and all scream and everything. But the one thing the Democrats are always so used to doing is taking it when people give it to them. So give it to them. Fight like the GOP does. Yeah. And watch how fast they cower like the cowards that they are. Yeah, I'd love to talk to her. She's spicy. Yeah. Well, she's, That's what I like. She's her. She's sp- I know, but but so. she's just. She's, she's just, got she's got it going on. She's got it going on. And they, That's they are all I know. Very, 
And, her dress and, to whatever this thing was. But their whole so their whole relationship is so the non-traditional yeah. DC. Well, I just, and that probably drives them nuts. I know, and I good. love it. That's it makes me so happy. Anyway. Smash the like button, subscribe, double K. Love you to death. Thank you. So Same much. thing to Linda. Same thing to everybody who is here tonight and supports our small but mighty podcast. Smash that like button, share it, subscribe it, do all those wonderful things. We'll see you Monday. Bye, all. Thanks for watching. If you want to support our mission to transform politics into service, please like this video, subscribe, follow us on social media, and consider joining our Patreon, where you'll get early access to our interviews as well as other exclusive content. Links are in the description. Peace out.